Welcome back, everybody. I have the distinction of speaking with somebody who is trying to create a movement that all of us need, and I want to talk to her all about it. Please welcome to the program, Jenny Grace McComb. Thanks. It's really good to be here. It's, it's my pleasure. And uh, <clears throat> looking, <clears throat> excuse me, losing my voice, and looking at the organization uh, that you have, Be an Arts Hero, uh, is really heartwarming because we always have these conversations of what is the role of the arts within our society and does the society have a need to contribute to it and to continue growing it and <clears throat> to me it's such a silly question because the answer is resounding of course but some people seem not to think that way and some people find all sorts of excuses not to dedicate a certain portion of our uh, of our budget to the arts which <laughs> Again, it's it's one of those things that really don't make sense to me about our wonderful country. So I am so happy that uh, you and your organization are doing something about it. Please tell us more about Be an Arts Hero. Sure. Um, you know, Be an Arts Hero is an intersectional grassroots campaign. We like to call it a, a kitchen table movement. Um, which started um, with myself, um, Brooke Ishibashi, Carson Elrod, and Matthew Lee Erlbach um, in, in our respective um, kitchens and living rooms. Um, when we realized that uh, the arts and culture sector, um, no one was really coming to save us, at least that's what we thought initially. Um, it, it's, it's one of the, the lessons I think any upstart um, begins, which is like, this this is something that nobody's ever done before. And as we've gained momentum and we've made really amazing allies, we've realized there's such important work that often um, goes unsung or unacknowledged um, within our community um, that people have been doing for decades. So, um, you know, we've sort of changed the narrative or changed the story of how we um, have come to be um, into, in, instead of a story of nobody's coming to save us, um, we've, we've realized there are a lot of folks um, in the good fight, um, and we've, we've had the honor of joining them in that fight. Um, we just happen to be the new kids on the block. <laughs> and uh, what are some of the you know, alliances you've mentioned that you've made wonderful alliances? What are some of the things that you've seen that hopefully you have been able to accomplish already? Oh, I mean, We've, um, we've met with, um, I, I want to say I, the exact number, uh, correct me if I'm, you know, like I might, I might be wrong at this point. We've met with over 50 Senate offices, dozens of House um, offices. Um, we've um, drafted our own bill language. Um, we um, initiated two days of actions that were, that were national um, campaigns, that were national days of actions. Um, and we have, I mean, we have been fighting tirelessly for federal relief for the arts and culture sector. It is my job all day, every day. I wake up and this is all I do until I fall asleep. Yeah, and that's why I, I appreciate so much taking uh, your time away from that uh, to spend with us. And hopefully we can, uh, we can be yet another avenue of people, um, you know, joining the good fight for you. You know, one of the things that Carson likes to say is that um, you have to have the conversation to change the conversation. Yeah. Um, so it's my pleasure to talk on this show. Um, this is part of the work, right? Um, what we are, what we've realized about um, the work that we're doing um, is that we're not just fighting for federal relief. That's how we began, right? Um, but we're also, we're realizing that we, our task is also to rebuild after this crisis is over and then to reposition the arts and culture sector as a legislative priority um, moving forward in our government. So that means um, a secretary of arts and culture, for example. Um, so within that, um, we realized that data is on our side. Um, you know, we are a, a sector that contributes $877 billion yeah. to the United States GDP. Yeah. I mean, that's an astronomical amount. We're 4.5% of the GDP and we employ 5.1 million Americans. So it's not, the, the data is actually on our side. So what we realized is um, what we are really um, up against is bias. Um, 
And it, what we have to do is change the story of how people see our sector. It is an economic sector filled with over 650,000 small businesses. Um, and we are an economic driver. We are a jobs creator. Um, and what we, are, what we are doing is, is basically changing the narrative of how people view our sector um, and how they view arts workers. So uh, these conversations on shows like yours are, are not a distraction from the work, they actually are the work. Um, again, you have to have the conversation to change the conversation. Yeah. So what are the biases that you have been encountering in your conversation so far? Um, I think, well, there, there are multitudes of them. Um, when we talk about arts workers, um, one of the thing, one of the terms that we use instead of artist is arts worker, because the arts and culture sector employs more than just the people you see on stage or behind the camera, right? Um, and those people are impacted by this crisis um, just as much, if not more so, than the you know the actors, performers, singers, um, uh, dancers that you would see on stage or on the cam on on camera, right? Um, <clears throat> There's arts administrators, there's ushers, there's um, concession folks, there's roadies, there's, um, there's stage, did I say stage managers already? Um, there's directors, choreographers, uh, technicians, there's, um, you know, the list goes on and on and on and on and on, 5.1 million workers on. So, um, you know, this show would be very long if I went down the list. <laughs> Um, but one of the, the ways with which we're changing the narrative is by reminding folks that arts work is work and that there are more folks employed by the arts and culture sector than just artists, right? So um, one of the narratives that we hear a lot is, is kind of confusing actually when you really take it apart, when you really deconstruct it. Um, this idea that there is, that the arts and culture sector is filled with nothing but starving artists you know, which is this idea that we are sort of a, a, a drain on society or a blight on society and that we don't have a practical job, that one that, that employs people or, or contributes uh, monetarily to society, which, you know, $877 billion, again, just reminding you. Um, but the, then the other side of it is, is that we're either starving artists or we're coastal elites sitting in our Malibu beach houses. You know, it's sort of like, which one is it? And the answer is neither. Um, the vast majority of arts and culture workers are, are solidly middle class and very often a member of at least one union. So we're talking about the backbone of what we think of when we think of labor in this country um, being perfectly encapsulated in the arts and, arts and culture sector. Um, so that's one of the one of the biases, you know. I think another one is simply the idea that um, arts and culture um, primarily exists in say New York, LA and a little bit of Chicago, right? And the truth of the matter is, is that arts and culture um, employs um, folks in, in the tens of thousands in every single state of our union, including DC and Puerto Rico. And there's not a single state in our union where the arts and culture doesn't contribute billions of dollars to their state's GSP. So part of how we're changing the narrative and part of the bias that we're fighting against is this idea that we're small potatoes, um, that we are, are not an economically robust sector of this, of, of this economy, of our nation's economy, um, and that um, our work isn't valuable or isn't um, worthwhile. Yeah, I, I think, again, as I'm not really an outsider because I'm a part of the industry, but uh, as, as somebody uh, who is listening to this, I the first thing that comes to mind is, now that you mentioned how much money the industry is contributing to it, it would be great to show, you know, in terms of number of workers, we employ as many as this industry, or we contribute as much as this industry. I think that, that would really kind of uh, highlight to people, it's not just numbers, it's, oh my God, yeah, you know, how we compare to manufacturing or agriculture or you know, finance uh, industry in the United States. These, these things would, uh, would, again, highlight for people who are unfamiliar um, just how big and important it is. And the other question is, you know, people think that uh, the government is really funding the arts. 
which uh, again I find I find ironic. But how much money is in the you know budget um, that is actually contributed uh, to the arts versus how much money the industry generates on its own? Sure. Um, well, first of all, um, you can. There are some wonderful resources that anyone can can check out um, if you have access to the internet. Um, one is the, all right, so I'm going to give you the acronym and then I'm going, I, I always flip the, what, the rep, what the words are in my brain. Mm -hmm. um, it's what we call the other NASA, N-A-S-A-A. And mm -hmm. that's the National Association of States Arts Agencies, I believe is, is the correct order of those words. Um, and it has this wonderful dynamic map that we use all the time. Um, we're also in contact with them. They're wonderful folks. Um, and it, it basically, you can, all of that information is there. Um, we do contribute more than transportation, more than agriculture. Um, it, it is, it is one, we are an, a huge economic driver and beyond more than transportation or yes, more 200 and I want to say $260 billion more than, um, transportation I'm, I'm fudging on the numbers a little bit but it's let's it, it's over 200 billion is what we'll say um, so when we talk about these other sectors nobody has any problem understanding why um, there are government subsidies for agriculture or government su subsidies for transportation or government subsidies for um, construction which were also larger than um, so we don't, the, the closest we have is, is the National Endowments for the Arts, which um, is, uh, has been systematically defunded over the course of a couple of decades, mm -hmm. a few decades. Um, it was, it was sort of the casualty of the, the 80s culture wars where um, there were a, a few lawmakers who decided that um, all all arts and culture in this uh, country needed to suffer and be defunded because they didn't like a, a couple of um, arts works that were funded by the NEA. Mm. Um, that's politics. And, you know, we are, by, for the record, being Arts Hero is completely nonpartisan. Um, we believe that um, arts and culture is, <laughs> you know, like arts and culture is universal. If anything is universal, it's song, it's dance, it's expression. I mean, we are, uh, arts and culture, as Matthew Lee Erlbach likes to say, we are the um, First Amendment industry. Um, we are the, the self-expression industry. So that doesn't have a party affiliation. Um, so within that, when I talk about lawmakers in the past, that's not an invective against any particular um, political party. So I want to be clear on that. Um, but going, uh, when we talk about biases, which we've just talked about, you know, um, there are some folks that when they think of the NEA, it's just immediately, uh, you know, the, there is a narrative about the NEA, um, about who it benefits, um, and about what it does. Um, and very often, um, about its efficacy or its necessity. Um, when the truth of the matter is, is that most um, most countries, first world countries, of which we would like to think we are among, <laughs> um, they they allocate a, a generous portion of of um, federal money to the arts and culture sector, um, and that's not because uh, we're a charity or a luxury. It's because we're an economic driver and. Um, our rate of return is nearly double that of the national average. So um, when you're looking for a really sound investment that um, consistently, um, like basically they, they've done a study. Um, Richard Florida um, wrote this wonderful book. Um, I want to call, I'm, I'm, I'm completely blanking on the name. I believe it's called the, the Rise of the Creative Class. And it's essentially about this, um, about how um, one of the two leading factors to um, basically repairing a, a blighted neighborhood or an impoverished area, um, repairing it from the inside without gentrification, um, which is very important, is um, there are two factors. One is that there is an environment that is um, inclusive to the LGBTQI plus community. Um, and then the second is that there is an arts and culture institution installed in that area. 
And when that happens, when those two things happen, um, that area, it's almost mathematical. It's almost scientific. It, it increases the economic um, boon of that area um, in multitudes, and it actually is exponential. So the more arts and culture institutions that are installed in an area, the, the, the higher the rate of return um, of that area. Uh, to me, again, this is, this is a no-brainer because uh, the whole idea of humanity, the whole idea of productivity is if we ask anybody that you know, reach a certain level of productivity in their day, the answer is always the same. I really like what I do. So if people do not like what they do, they're not going to be as productive in it. They're not going to be as effective in it. So creativity and ability to do what you love, which encompasses, you know, our industry and the industry that literally uh, does things because they love it. We're dealing with enormous amount of rejection dealing with huge amount of self-sacrifice. Uh, and this is a really, really difficult industry to be in. We do this because we're creatives. So the productivity and the uh, inclusivity and the acceptance, all of these are inherently a part, of, uh, a part of who we are and what we're about. And that in general translates to the basic mathematical and business principles that if you love what you do, and if you're excited about your life, if you care about people, everything is going to grow. And sure. it's, it's a no-brainer. I, I don't, and I think some of the biases that you may be encountering is that you are a charity. And, you know, we have this National Endowment for the Arts, and we have money always allocated to the arts. And all they do is just, you know, uh, put out movies that are, are, are saying bad things about, uh, you know, politics. That's not the point. The point is, and, and you're doing the right thing by educating uh, and saying, no, we are a huge industry. Uh, this is a driving business force. So you, you took it, in my opinion, you took it to the proper way of, uh, of dealing with it. It's same thing with, you know, I, I created a health and wellness platform. Uh, and I showed that it has 92% success rate in, uh, you know, based on the two groups that I went through it. Uh, with stress reduction, you know, 86% uh, in getting better shape, whatever. Um, but it took me going to corporate and showing them the specifics of it and how it's going to improve their sales force uh, and their, you know, uh, ability for people to actually be on the payroll working, uh, being more productive as opposed to being at home sick. You know, it took that, it took the money in order for them to understand that, oh, this is important. Otherwise, it was just a fad. It was whatever, you know, do this. Yeah, who cares? Oh, it's something that affects my bottom line. Okay. Yes. You know, you're, you're doing the same thing and God bless you for it. it exactly so. So like the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that we've been um, part of the reason why we believe a lot of arts and culture um, advocacy hasn't been um, as successful and again, all of the credit in the world to um, all of the other folks fighting the good fight alongside us um, is partially because um, we were very used to the narrative of arts and culture is good because it feeds our soul. It's the social good that's the that's the um, that's the reason why it's important. And I believe that. I do believe that. And that is. Um, that continues to be true. Um, we see the social impacts of the arts and culture sector um, and how, um, how much it affects our population in terms of um, equality, justice, um, empathy, um, all of the ways with which um, it, it helps our society, right? Um, it's one of the oldest, it, it's, it remains to be true that we'll, everything we know about ourselves as a species, we know through arts and culture. If we go back to, um, if we go back to, to, to the dawn of, of uh, humankind, um, everything we know about past civilizations, we know through their architecture, their art, their pottery, everything we know about them, their literature, all of that is art. Everything we know about ourselves, 
about our humanity is through the arts. That goes for past and future. Because when you think about what um, the the space beacon that we sent out, you know, out into the out into the um, the universe, yeah. what did we project to other civilizations? We sent them our art, our very expression of who we are. So. Um, you know, we make that argument and have made that argument because it's um, it's correct, right? It's just intrinsically true, but that doesn't get laws passed, and and it doesn't speak senator. So we've we the good news is is that we can use the dollars and cents argument quite well because we have the data to back it up. So, um, but one of the wonderful things about this work is that. We can make the argument that it's both good for society and good for the bottom line, um, and both are true. We don't have to manipulate a single bit of data. It's all there. Like, it is one of the most um, easy, easy um, arguments you can make. You know, like it's, you know, for lack of a better word, a, a no-brainer. <laughs> well, and especially now, you know, having uh, uh, gone through COVID, we're still very much in depth of it, but, mm -hmm as we as a society are starting to eventually come out of it uh, and we need to rebuild our economy, this is another driving force that should be a part of it and that can be a part of it. I mean, we talked about Broadway being shut down. Uh, I, I mean, how many people just in Broadway are, are out of a job or are not participating in the economy? It's huge numbers. Uh, and it has nothing even to not even touching the travel aspect of people coming to see it. It's just people in New York. So it is a huge economical driver uh, and you know, it needs to be addressed. Well, 68% of tourism is cultural. Right. Yeah. 68%. Mm -hmm. um, and that isn't just for New York City. That's for the entire nation. So when you think about um, Florida, when you think about Texas, South by Southwest, when you think about um, Sundance Film Festival in Utah, when you think about Bonnaroo, and um, when you think about Coachella, um, you, you know, these are, these are tourist events and they are enormous economic drivers in their areas. Um, and they affect the entire economy of that entire um, location, that, that town, that city, um, or that county really. Um, and they, those um, arts and culture events um, are, are something that that area relies on for their economic model. Um, so, you know, when we talk about certain I'm always forgetting the name of this theater. There's a theater um, that we reference quite often. It is 5,000 5, seats, mm -hmm. right? Um, and there is an outdoor theater and they, um, and their summer season is, is something that that entire area relies on because 5,000 people pile into that theater every single night during the summer. And, you know, why in, before pre-COVID, um, the owner of that theater would walk down Main Street and the, the restaurant owners would come out of the restaurant, shake his hand. And, you know, like, and their entire business model of these restaurants in this area were based off of the existence of this theater, right? Um, their, entire, um, their entire business relied on it. And when that theater shut down for COVID, three restaurants immediately closed permanently. I don't know what the, what, and that was months ago. So I can only imagine it's gotten worse. So when we talk about, you know, Matthew Lee Erlbach describes um, arts and culture institutions as stars. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a really wonderful metaphor. Um, and just like the sun is ours, is, is our star, right? Um, it nurtures and makes possible all of the life in the solar system, right? Um, but when a star implodes, it creates a black hole. Um, and so what we're watching um, is without federal relief to our sector, which has been, again, disproportionately affected. So this is, this is the part that sometimes people have to have illustrated, which is the arts and culture sector 
um, has is one of the first to close and will be one of the last to reopen because most of the business models of arts and culture sector institutions require large amounts of people to gather in one place um, in, in an enclosed area um, shoulder to shoulder and it requires the workers um, to many of them to be dancing next to each other, holding each other, kissing each other, having fake love scenes, singing in each other's faces. None of those things are great for um, an aerosol spreading pandemic disease. <laughs> um, so, so that's why our sector is, there is no way to plan for this crisis. And even the best business models um, can't, wouldn't have been able to prepare for this. Um, so, uh, we we do need federal help in the same way that other areas of our of our um, economy. Um, I'm thinking specifically of transportation that's been horribly affected. I'm thinking of hospitality, hotels and restaurants, bars. Those are all have the same similar um, business model, and all of those have uh, have been made legislative priorities. Mm -hmm. So we're simply asking to be made a legislative priority on par with some of the other industries who have received relief um, in our economy. As, as you should. I mean, the aviation uh, industry is being helped, but guess where they're flying to? And guess why they're flying there? It's not just business. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, visiting, it's, it's tourism. Um, it's just, it's silly. U.S. Open, I'm a, I'm a huge tennis fan. U.S. Open uh, is two weeks out of the year. There is an enormous uh, facility in, uh, I believe, Queens that uh, houses the, uh, the you know, National uh, Tennis Center. It's huge. It's very expensive. But guess what? In those two weeks, it brings more money than, um, I'm pretty sure that brings more money than baseball throughout its season and uh, some of the other industries in just two weeks because it's about people coming in to watch the uh, people play. The same thing happens in Broadway. The same thing happens uh, everywhere around the country. It's, it's a huge economic driver. All right, we've, we've kind of uh, covered that part. I want to know now more about you as an artist because you are so busy doing this right now and because of uh, you know, our industry in essence being shut down, some things are starting to, or started to open up. Now they may get closed down again. Um, do you miss not acting? Because I know you're an actress. I know you're a director. I know you're a producer. So uh, you're, you're doing this, which is enormously important, but uh, do you miss the other part of you? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, this is all I've ever known. It's, it's one of the, you know, my earliest memory is of art. Um, and it has been the, the only thing in my life since I was a child that, you know, some people, I know that, you know, that in some ways I'm privileged that um, some people spend a long time struggling to find out what, what they're supposed to do with their lives, right? Um, or what their what their leading passion is in their lives. Um, and it's never been a mystery to me. It's never been something that I've struggled with in that way. Um, the only thing, the only part of the struggle is that uh, I love almost every single sector of art. <laughs> um, I am deeply passionately in love with almost every single discipline in art of, of the of arts and culture. Um, I'm, I'm devoted to visual art, um, uh, singing, um, um, to theater and film. Um, I just, um, I'm not a great dancer, but that doesn't mean I'm, you know, at least a choreographed dancer, but that doesn't mean I don't love it. And I love being around dancers. Oh, the way that they, um, treat their bodies as a, as a discipline is just fascinating to me. Um, I did some work, um, volunteering for steps on Broadway just so I could um, be around that environment and learn from it um, and trade in the volunteer work for classes. Again, terrible dancer. So it wasn't to, to be a, <laughs> an excellent ballet dancer. It was, it was just heady to be with people who were, who were practicing their work daily, hourly. And that kind of devotion to your craft is intoxicating um, and fascinating to me. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I've 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 been 
Um, I'm a writer, um, director, producer, um, actress, um, and a visual artist as well. And it's, it's one of those things where um, I miss all of it, um, but I'm also enormously fulfilled with what I'm doing now. Um, I'm, I keep on trying to envision a future in which I'm able to um, do both <laughs> because I feel that this work is so important and I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to um, grow as a person and live up to the responsibilities that, um, that have kind of been surprisingly put on my shoulders. I want to be worthy of the work. Um, so it, it, it does, it does necessitate me let it, putting my work, what has defined me for my entire life to the side of it. Um, I've written a little bit, but you know, there's no real acting work going on right now. So that's, that I'm not worried about, you know, but some of the other stuff that I would normally be doing, um, I, you know, I was badly injured. Um, I don't know if the camera can pick it up, but, um, yeah. Yeah. What um, so, um, I was carrying glasses and someone ran into me and the glasses sort of shattered like a tambourine and slit my wrist, um, and, um, severed my median medial nerve. Um, I, I don't have any feeling in part of my hand, my thumb, um, my, and I can't really move it past this. Um, I had nerve graft surgery, um, from my, um, transferring a nerve from my leg into my dominant hand to, um, but that meant that I was basically down an arm and a leg for a series of months. Um, so you can't really get acting work if you have just a gaping wound <laughs> and a non-working right dominant hand and a, and a boot on your leg. You know, I mean, I'm sure that there's, there's some, there was some gig that I missed that was looking for someone with only one working hand and leg, but um, otherwise, you know, you pivot, you know, I, I use that time to um, help co-produce a, um, a podcast version of, um, of The Blondes, which is this wonderful novel written by Emily Schultz. Um, she's, uh, they, so we did a version of that. I was able to help cast um, a series that eventually went to um, Tribeca Film Festival. Um, and I wrote a play that um, was uh, a finalist for the O'Neill and the Jane Chambers Excellence in Feminist Writing. You know, like I was able to do things during that time that didn't, you know, that wasn't acting. Um, and that's what I probably honestly would be doing now, if I wasn't doing this, is finding a way to still express myself and still participate in the arts as an artist. But this is important work too. And um, while I miss, boy, do I miss um, the creative process. Um, if I think about it too much, I'll, I'll start to cry. I get you. Um, <laughs> are you becoming ambidextrous uh, since that time? No, I can use my right hand. Um, I did have to sort of relearn how to write, um, however, because um, the my functionality in my right hand isn't great, um, nor is the feeling great. But um, I'm not great with my left hand. <laughs> I I recall, and this is something that helped me. Not that you know, I'm trying to uh, you know give you uh, life lessons, but. Um, I recall in one of you know my computer jobs, I was uh, I was working with a director, and he would you know write uh, kind of uh, with his non-dominant hand. And I asked him about it. He said, "Yeah, I'm doing it purposefully because it develops your brain and develops uh, you know uh, other functions." And he would uh, kind of do things with both hands. And since that time, I started kind of playing with it. I'm you know right hand dominant. So what I started doing is when my son and I would throw uh, a ball, I would throw with my left and my right. Uh, when we would play uh, ping pong, I would play with my right and my left. Mm -hmm. And not that I have become ambidextrous, but it became, <clears throat> it became more of who I am. So I'm not sure how it rewired my brain and if you know, more, more, more parts are being utilized. But when I broke my uh, left wrist, uh, you know, recently, I think three years ago. Um, it's even though I'm right hand dominant, 
kind of because I was used to doing things with both hands, uh, it was an easier process. So I don't know if this is something that uh, you want to kind of uh, investigate because you realize all of a sudden, and I'm sure you've had that too, like all of a sudden you don't have a normal way of doing things and you can figure it out, right? The, oh, yeah. You know, I keep my hand, uh, my hand, I keep my phone in my right hand, uh, you know, pen top pocket, right? If I can't do it, no, how do I do it? But you figure it out. You figure it out because you realize that, oh, things bent in a way that I didn't really use before. Mm -hmm. So it was weird, but it, it gets, uh, it gets stuff done. And uh, I, I remember looking at the videos of people who were born you know, without, uh, without arms, and then they're only using their, you know, legs for painting, for, you know, working, for clothing their child, for playing the uh, piano. And uh, initially, kind of when I was watching those, I was just blown away by it. But when I, you know, lost function for a period of time in, in my uh, wrist, it, it goes back to, okay, I can figure things out and it became more of that exercise. So, you know, um, it's, it, it life happens. Uh, it just oh. what we choose to do when it does. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, I, I mean, I use my left hand a lot and, and especially, you know, when I was younger, it was, there was a lot of me, I was really fascinated with the idea of being ambidextrous. So I practiced a lot with my left hand um, writing. It was, it, and also as an artist, as a visual artist, one of the, the common practices is to um, basically trade hands and, and, you know, sketch and, and paint with your, with your non-dominant hand to, um, to explore the difference, like how your, your, brain works um, because of course um, you know there's this wonderful book it's called drawing from the right side of your brain if you've ever read it um, it's it was my both of my parents are left-handed um, which is interesting because they they raised two right-handers um, so I, I grew up in a house with nothing but left-handed scissors you know like I, I grew up in a very left left dominated uh, household. Um, so I, I'm very, I was very used to it um, as a child of, of exploring my left-handedness and also as a martial artist. I'm, I've, I've studied for a number of years, um, something else that COVID has taken away is, and my injury before that. Um, yes, I was um, uh, MMA, um, Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu are boxing are, are sort of my, my discipline that I've, been cultivating for, ooh, I think it's probably seven, eight years now. Um, mm -hmm. And that's something that requires very much ambidextrousness, ambidexterity, ambidexterity, yeah. there it is. We'll, we'll go with it. Yeah, sure. Um, and some, a part of, you know, as I said before, not a great dancer, um, but part of my devotion to um, initially it was MMA and then later, um, you know, I wanted to hone in on the, like the breakdown of, because mixed martial arts is mixed. So I wanted to understand what the pure forms of that, of that martial art was, yeah, you know, I wanted to explore boxing in its purity and um, Muay Thai in its purity. Um, purity is probably the wrong word, but you understand what I mean. Um, but both of them, you know, like, I've never, I'm not, I've never really quite been great at choreographed dance. And part of the way I was wanting to explore why that is, is through martial arts, um, because it does access the same parts of your brain, you know, mm -hmm. about learning choreographed steps, but instead of them being dance moves, they're um, fighting moves. Um, and it wasn't something I was initially good at. And then I got pretty good. Um, and it became a huge part of my life for a long time. Um, I miss it very much. But with that, you absolutely have to use both hands. Um, I'm just not great with writing with my left hand. I've practiced for a long time. I can type just fine, everything else. And I, I use both hands pretty, pretty well. Um, it's just the physical writing that it's, it's frustrating. I like to move faster than that.
I, I, I understand that. So back to the martial arts, because I'm an avid martial art uh, fan. I, I've been in martial arts my whole life. There, again, to, to, uh, to put it bluntly, there are fighters and there are people who love it. I am people who love it, uh, as opposed to the, to the fighter uh, variety. An aficionado. Huh? An aficionado. Aficionado, yes. As somebody who, who's appreciative of the actual art form. Um, that, that's me. I have my, you know, black belt. So I got to my point of having my name, uh, you know, in gold on my black belt, which is, which is a, mm, I love that. But, uh, it's, it's, I, I consider it more of an honorary title rather than, than a fighting ability. Um, what, was your, what was your discipline? It was, it was mixed uh, as well. Uh, I trained, uh, the first discipline that I had was judo when I was a kid, and uh, I loved uh, judo, but I didn't do it for that long. Uh, then I did uh, karate. Then when I came to the United States, I did um, I did mix. So mix was more of it was a uh, a wonderful Russian uh, Russian practitioner who trained the special forces. So uh, he had his own kind of mix of you know russian sambo with uh traditional chinese uh, techniques with a little bit of uh jeet Kune Do. so it was it was kind of this mix so he and the world uh wuka uh world uh something something you know arts association I, i'm looking at my at my certificate um, they came, they came out and they were, they were testing. So he made me test for, I'm like, I'm not ready. I'm, I shouldn't be testing. <laughs> he made me test and that's how I got my black belt. But it was a mix. But, you know, me personally, my, my heart, uh, this is, I don't know, past life or me just growing up watching Bruce. Uh, it's, uh, it's more kind of, uh, Kung Fu and Tai Chi and softer, softer flowing uh, styles. It's not necessarily, I mean, Jeet Kune Do, yes, but you know, Tai Chi is not for martial arts application. It's more of, there's just something when I put the uniform on and when I start moving, it's just home. It's me. So whatever, for whatever reason, it's just, that's me. So it was much more on the softer styles versus the harder styles. Um, that's, that's my thing. But Big fan of Muay Thai. Um, I tried, <laughs> I tried boxing once. I got uh, punched in the in the in the face. I said, I'm not going to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you either love it or hate it. I yeah. see. For me, I love punching. I love it. I love the high. I love the high contact. I love punching. I love kicking. I love all of that so much and you know um the interesting thing about getting punched in the face is that um at a certain point you start to take apart you you know like you start to deconstruct what your response to being punched is um and so much of it is the anticipation of pain and so much of it is the shock of actually being touched in a place where most people do not touch you yeah. um and then the actual pain is is just a small fraction of what it is yeah. most of it is the fear of pain yeah. um the shock that something has happened to you and then just the tiniest percentage of it is actual real pain you know so thinking through it is is a very fascinating thing for me um but i mean for me it was a lot of um you know, I'm, I'm open about this, you know, I'm a, a survivor of domestic abuse. Um, so for me, my, my interest in exploration of martial arts, and I think a lot of women that I knew when I was training and coming up, um, coming up in MMA, they were sort of cycling through their own trauma and their own um, ways of taking control over a you know like a situation in from the past that where they didn't have control um and for me certainly you know getting punched in the face initially was like super triggering and uh a, you know like the, there was a lot of panic attack there was a lot of hyperventilation that came with that um with um jujitsu which i love so much you know having so much of that 
work be where somebody's on top of you trying to choke the life out of you um a lot of a lot of processing of a lot of feelings a lot of memories that you know like came up but you know one of i found it very therapeutic in addition to therapy actual therapy i found it very therapeutic to really you know, in real time, learn how to not panic, learn what to do in a situation like that, but also learn that um, there are, that half of, you know, like half of what you're fighting against is your own fear. So much of what it is, is your own fear. And if you can push past the fear and start to navigate in real time um, into problem solving mode, then you, you might not win. You might still be tapped out but you're not panicking through the the decision making process mm -hmm. you're instead um pushing that acknowledging that fear because fear is your friend in some ways you know there's a wonderful book called the gift of fear um it, it's it's in us for a reason it's to to keep us alive right but when it no longer serves us um when it basically short circuits all the rest of the parts of your brain that are going to also keep you alive, which is the decision-making problem-solving parts of your brain, then you say, thank you so much, Fear. I'm gonna put you right here, right next to me. And now I'm going to sort of explore all the different ways that I can get out of the situation. And uh, for me, martial arts is so much about, um, almost the physical discipline is, is less than half of it. It's the mental discipline. It's what it teaches you about how to encounter difficulties, how to encounter fear and, and navigate through it, how to, um, your relationship to panic, your relationship to anxiety, your relationship to antagonism and conflict. Um, and, um, you know, I'm one of those, there, there isn't a zealot more, there isn't, there's no zealot like a convert. I'm, I'm one of those people that's like every single woman should take a self-defense class, not a self-defense class, specifically a martial arts, you know, like they should, it should be in, taught to every single child, regardless of gender, really, but specifically women, yeah. women need to, yeah. I think we have been taught to be really afraid physically of men. And I'm not saying that that's right or true in, in, you know, like I, I'm not saying that, um, even with uh, self-defense under your belt that you should engage in a physical conflict with someone who's bigger than you, regardless of gender again. But there is, I know when I first started to really integrate the art in the martial arts into my brain, it was like a weight had lifted off of my back and I, I didn't realize how much of my life I lived in fear just from walking from place to place or if, or, or walking home after dark, any of the, so many, I didn't realize how much fear I carried inside of my body until it started to release. And I just feel like everyone deserves that, deserves that release. A hundred percent. I have a 16 year old daughter. So, you know, she did a number of years of, uh, of Taekwondo, but no offense to Taekwondo. Uh, taekwondo is not great in real life application uh, uh, in, a, in a street fight, unless you're a high level you know, practitioner. So she took Taekwondo. I'm still having her go and continue uh, and take self-defense classes and do that because there needs to be that level of confidence. I remember myself growing up, you know, very little confidence. I was a nerdy kid. You know, I loved acting and uh, I was writing poetry. So you can, you can imagine uh, the fun that I was having. We would have been friends. <laughs> yes. Yes. And again, this is, this is the, our industry, right? You know, it's, it's mm -hmm. our pool of, uh, of people who are, who are creative, who are accepting, who are uh, um, true to who they really are as, as human beings. So uh, going and taking martial arts was a huge thing, but it's a wave. And I found that when I'm in that wave, when I'm taking martial arts, when I'm training, the confidence level is very different from, you know, I haven't uh, trained for a while. I stopped training because uh, I almost had my eye poked out. Uh, I don't think I have the little scar anymore, but uh, we were doing in that, you know, uh, <clears throat> in that uh, um, coaches, uh, you know, we had full gear on, we were practicing, you know, kind of uh, knife techniques and sparring. And mm -hmm. we're just doing free sparring, we put everything on, but I did not put the goggles on. 
So everything on, and it was a you know hard rubber knife as opposed to the you know little uh, a little flimsy uh, flexible one. And uh, you know he went. Uh, I blocked something, but you know I mostly didn't see what was happening. And then I realized that hmm, I may have just lost my left eye. Oh God. And I very kind of gingerly opened my eye. Okay, good. It's still there. And then like, I don't know, a centimeter or a few millimeters below the eye is where there was a cut. So just a little more. And then I was at that time, what, 37, 38. I said, do I really need this? <laughs> and, and the answer was no, because I am not a fighter. I, I was never interested in fighting or hurting someone. It was more of the, I love the art and I love uh, practicing it. I don't really care about sparring because to me, sparring is an interesting uh, element on its own. When I'm sparring, I know what I would be doing if I was actually in a fight, but I, I have to hold, you know, I, I, you know, I touch. Uh, and then it always frustrates me when I was sparring and people were going hard. I'm like, dude, I can go harder too, but then I break your leg and that's not the point. So no, like, it's not. You, you can't spar with anybody who doesn't know how to, to yeah. like you should be able to bring it to a four. You right. know, that's, you, you need, you spar to spar tomorrow. That's the, that's the rule. You spar to spar another day. Mm -hmm. And if you're, you know, like, it's just like watching those kittens or puppies and the ones that don't know how to, how to put in their claws, yep. you know, like, it's like, you know, we're, we're play fighting. You do know that there's a difference. We're play fighting. Put your claws back in. Like, cause this is, you know, like we're, we're pretending to hurt mm -hmm. each other. We're practicing for a real life event. I'm not, you know, like I'm not out to hurt you and you should not be out to hurt me. Yeah. Um, we should be practicing for the real enemies of the world, not <laughs> making enemies out of each other. Um, that always drove me crazy when somebody went too hard. Yeah. It's like, it's, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's a dance, right? It, it's that the respect uh, factor of, you know, I know that if, if you're going, you know, this is what I'm supposed to be doing and I see the distance and I know that I can get there and I am kind of touching and I'm doing that. And at the same time, I'm getting hit back. I'm like, okay, you know, if I did what I did, you wouldn't be standing anymore. So the point of the rest of it is just for us to learn and to kind of uh, play. So like the sparring, I never found uh, useful because you either go or you don't. And I never wanted to go because I, 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 as a person, I never want to hurt anybody. I want to get them away. And God forbid if I'm ever in a situation, which thankfully I have not been, where it's, it's one of those things where I have to use what I know because I don't know if I would be able to use what I know. But I basically said, after, <laughs> after almost losing it, I said, thank you. Uh, and you know, I, I went and then I just started practicing uh, Tai Chi, which I need to get back into. Uh, and that, that, that gives me my fill. Uh, I'm still connected. I'm still doing this, but it's, it's a very different uh, exploration. So I, I basically just, you know, watch a lot of martial arts films and talk to martial artists. I had some on my program um, and, you know, the rest is, is uh, just appreciation. I, I tell you, I do like to mix it up. I'll be honest. I do like to mix it up. I, yeah, I'm. I don't mind the fighting part. I think part of part of that for me was just um, because I've spent so much of my life. You know, it, it's strange because I I do consider myself for the most part a pacifist. For the most part, I mean. I guess that's not true. You can't be part, partly a pacifist. For definitely, for a part of my life, I considered myself a pacifist, and I think that um, my relationship to the world has changed, and therefore my relationship to conflict has changed. I I think that there are some things worth fighting for, and some things that um, uh, unfortunately we don't live in a world where you can eschew violence. I wish that that were true, um, but you have to be able to put to to basically put your money where your mouth is with the bullies of the world. Um, and you have to be capable of defending yourself with the, with those who would wish to um, oppress you through violence. Yeah. So for me, 
um, you know, again, in, in, in a woman's body. Um, and I don't think a, that domestic violence is, um, inherently just a female experience. Um, that's one. Um, I don't think it's a gendered experience. We know that, um, domestic violence happens, uh, across genders. Um, but I, but it does overwhelmingly happen to women. It, um, same thing with sexual violence. And so I think <clears throat> the, again, it, it is not gendered. It, it happens to everyone, but, um, women are, or people, um, those who identify as women, um, you know, and the trans community, I would say as well, is, is disproportionately hit by violence, both sexual and domestic violence. Um, and so, you know, living in a certain body informs your relationship to violence. Um, and, you know, I think for me, I had to reconcile what I think is my intrinsically peaceful, gentle heart with the fact that I couldn't survive in the world with, with, you know, like that approach led to me being beaten multiple times. So, you know, like I had, there had to be a different approach to how I encountered people who meant me harm. Um, so it's evolved. I, it's complicated for me, but generally speaking, um, I've had to teach myself more metal and more, um, just I've had to teach myself to to not be stronger because I don't think that that's the same thing as is that but I've had to teach myself to be capable of violence which is not something that I um I think is naturally in me um but having taught it to myself I understand its value um and it makes me more fearless um in the face of bullies and ad adversaries um, and it makes me more capable of um, engaging in conflict, nonviolent conflict, just conflict in general, with a lot more clear-eyed focus. Um, so for that, I'm really grateful. Um, you know, it's a, it's a complicated relationship, um, humanity's relationship to violence. I don't have all the answers. <laughs> you, I think you have, uh, you have a good approach to it, and look where... Uh, if we're looking at you know the arc uh, so far of uh, of your life, you know look what you're doing right now. It, mm -hmm. It's picking the right fight. So your uh, ability and your perception uh, and your belief in yourself uh, is now allowing you to be in a situation where you can be fighting for others' rights and fighting for the industry that we love. And I don't think that uh, that's that's a stretch. I think one has to do with the other. Yes, I do too. And I will say that it's always been easier for me to fight for other people than for myself. That's always been true. Um, there's something about, you know, coming to someone else's defense that just morally speaking has, has instilled in me, you know, like a lot of my hesitation is about the morality of any kind of engagement, you know, any kind of uh, engagement in conflict is always about, well, what is the right thing to do? Um, is there a different approach I could have that would that would have a favorable a more favorable outcome? But when it comes to just any situation where I see someone being victimized in any way or oppressed in any way, like there's it just it's just clearer. It's just clearer when it's someone else. You know, I I'm teaching myself to be a defender of myself as passionately as I'm a defender of other people. Um, but it's a hard lesson. Yeah, it is. Well, Jenny, uh, this, this has been a, a joy to talk to you. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing and opening up. I know some of these things are not easy to talk about. I'm glad you're in the fight for our industry, and I'm really, really happy that you joined. Me too. This was such a pleasure. What a nice, uh, delightful time to, uh, experience and a nice little uh, break in my day, you know. Um, it's it's just nice to have, com I'm, I'm glad we talked about fighting. I mean, I love talking about my art, but you know, it, it feels like all I do all day, every day is, is, is talk about uh, being arts hero and, and the work. And of course it's all consuming and I love it, but you know, I like talking about martial, martial arts sometimes. <laughs> no, what a delight. That was such a nice little break in my day.
Thank you. Well, you're always welcome uh, back on. Um, you know, if you want to talk martial arts or anything else, uh, please let me know. And yeah, uh, let's, talk, let's talk some more about boxing and punching. Let's just. Uh... <laughs> I, listen, I, I think as a part of the, uh, you know what, let's end because I, I want to do anything else. So everybody, thank you very much for tuning in to another episode of The Love of Acting, where we never know where these conversations are going to go. The only thing that we know for certain is the people that we talk to really love what they do. And that's why we continue doing this. Thank you.